And we are live. We are here. We are back for what is unfortunately the final session of this wonderful three-part class that we've had the privilege of having with Dr. Malka Simkovich, The Legacy of the Ten Plagues. Uh, if you've missed previous classes or you just want to reminisce, you can find recordings on our website, drisha.org. They'll be there waiting for you as always. And as always, we appreciate your active participation uh, as suits the medium you're joining us with. So if you are with us on Zoom, it would be lovely if you would have your camera on uh, so we can get a little bit of a real classroom feel. And feel free to unmute when we have participatory uh, segments. Otherwise, feel free to write questions in the chat. If you're joining us on Facebook, I will check the comment section for anything you'd like to contribute or uh, pry about uh, relating to the class. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, hi, great to have you here as always. So in this third class, we're going to be looking at the 10 plagues in rabbinic memory. And I know we're excited, so I'm just going to let Dr. Simkovich get started. She's a lot more interesting than I am, so please take it away. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but thank you very much, Noah, and thanks to all of you for joining us for this last, the third class in this series. It feels like a very long time ago that we uh, gathered for our second class. I guess it's been a long seven days. Uh, so I'll remind you a little bit about what we've covered uh, in our first class. We talked about how Jews in the Second Temple period were relatively sympathetic towards the Egyptians and framed the story of the Exodus as a story by which all of humankind, Israelites and non-Israelites, came to know God. The focus was not on the inherent uh, maniacal evil of Paro. Uh, in the second class, we talked about how rising anti-Judaism first in Greek writings and then in Roman and then later in Christian writings uh, imputes some of the themes that we see in the Exodus story and attributes uh, disease and plague not to the sins of the Egyptians, but to the Israelites themselves. And so we have some very interesting stories about the origins of the Israelites that derive from Greek and Roman and then later Christian sources. And these uh, stories about the Jews argue that the, the inherent nature of the Jews as proven by their origin stories uh, testify to the fact that Jews are dirty, Jews spread plague and they spread disease. Uh, you might remember some of the interesting stories that we looked at last week. Um, Jews, uh, one source argues, were not uh, miraculously taken out of Egypt by their God, but they were expelled for being leprous. Another story that, Joseph, that Josephus cites tells of an annual ritual that the Jewish administrators of the Second Temple uh, enacted every year wherein they kidnapped an innocent Greek person and sacrificed him to the gods, not directly pertaining to plague, but certainly very troubling. Uh, there's another source that talks about how the Jews wanted to escape Egypt so that they could worship their god. And what was their god? The head of an ass. Uh, now, what we're going to see is that uh, in early rabbinic imagination, some of these accusations that are leveled against the Jews become transferred onto Christians themselves. So that in early rabbinic texts, 
Jews are saying, no, we're not the ones who you might want to associate with disease or donkeys or whatever, but actually those are our Christian neighbors. Those are the ones uh, that you should focus your ire on. And of course, in the first and second and third century, Christianity is an illegal Jewish sect in the eyes of the Roman empire. And so early Christians are persecuted terribly until of course things take a big turn in the fourth century when Constantine legalizes Christianity. But if you look at early rabbinic sources, you're going to see associations between Christians and plague, which sort of parallel the ways in which Greece and Romans are talking about the Jews. But at the same time, when it comes to the actual Exodus story, the rabbis are sympathetic towards Paro. So let's see how this all plays out. I'm going to share my screen. I have a lot, a lot of sources this week, and I don't expect to cover all of this, so we're just going to see how it goes. You'll see how it goes. I do not see that I can share. Hold on a second. Oh, there we go. Okay, great. Now I can share. Okay. Uh, hold on a second. This is going to take me a minute, and I appreciate your patience. Okay. Uh, Okay, now you should see rabbinic associations, dot, dot, dot. Okay, wonderful. So I just have a couple of sources here that I think are very interesting because the way in which, you know, there are very few allusions in rabbinic literature to Christianity and most of them are not explicit references, but actually allusions. I use that word intentionally because most of the rabbinic texts about Christianity are implicit rather than explicit. So I wanna point you to this interesting document um, in the Babylonian Talmud in Sanhedrin 103a. I think we're going to look at the English, but I've included, uh, I've included the original Hebrew and Aramaic over here. So the subject is the interpretation of a psalm. And the psalm, um, Psalm 91, has a, has a strange verse, an opaque verse that requires illumination. And the phrase, you might know this from the liturgy, uh, from Jewish liturgy, uh, Okay, so uh, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your tent. The question that the rabbis ask, uh, you know, what does this mean? What kind of evil? What kind of plague? And actually, I didn't include uh, on the source sheet all of the possibilities that are offered because I want to draw your attention to one possibility in particular. How might... Uh, be translated. May no plague approach or come near to your tent. How might it be translated? Well, one possibility uh, is uh, you will not have, this is very strange, uh, you will not have a child or student, uh, Ben Otamid, uh, who overcooks his food in public. And then in some manuscripts, there is an additional explanatory phrase such as Yeshu the Notsri, Jesus the Nazarene. So what does this mean? First of all, how do you get from here to there? How do you, how, why would this phrase have anything to do with Jesus? 
And second of all, what in the world does it mean to overcook your food in public? <laughs> like I've overcooked my food in private, but never in public. What could that possibly mean? So I actually came across a really interesting little uh, translation by a Protestant scholar. He didn't write this in 2007. This is a reprint uh, from many decades. I think he's an early 20th century scholar, but uh, what he says here is correct. He connects this passage to Brachot 34a, in which the Talmud says, he who goes before the ark, right, in the synagogue, um, he who is invited to uh, maybe to read from the Torah or to, to pray in front of a congregation, if he's invited to do so, at first he should refuse, right? Like you shouldn't be so over eager to go to the front of the synagogue and run services or recite, recite the Torah. Now, but he who does not refuse, who just like eagerly runs, you know, I want to be there, I want to lead, I want to be the focus, and you know, the the uh, big kahuna, I don't know what the phrase is, uh, is like food without salt. But if you refuse too much, you are overcooked food. You are like food of which the salt has burned or spoiled it. So in other words, Someone who refuses too much, I can't do this, I'm not gonna do this, I will not lead the congregation in prayer, they're open to the suspicion of heresy. Methinks the man doth protest too much. Why are you absolutely refusing to lead services? Could it be because your heart's not in it, because you don't believe it, because you're a heretic? Right? And he's like food who is spoiled or burned by too much salt. And so if you applied this metaphor that he who refuses to lead the congregation in prayer is possibly a heretic that is he's overspoiled maybe maybe the metaphor here is with too much philosophical knowledge i'm not sure to what extent we want to develop that this metaphor but if you put it back into this passage uh the child or student who overcooks his public uh, in, who overcooks his food in public and i think it's very significant barabim uh causing uh the rabbis and the scholars humiliation, bring them, drawing them into public disputation in synagogue spaces, which is exactly what Jesus does. He goes to synagogue Saturday morning, Shabbat morning, and he debates the Pharisees in synagogue. This is all preserved in the New Testament. And he's kicked out of the synagogue, aposynagogos, the fourth gospel tells us, the gospel of John tells us. And so uh, Jesus is intentionally engaging the rabbis in public spaces and specifically in synagogue spaces. So the, the interpretation here, and I know this is a little bit complex, is that this phrase in Psalms, v'nega lo alecha, is a blessing that you don't have a son, a child, or a student who is guilty of heresy and causes you public humiliation like Jesus the Nazarene. Now, whew, that's a lot. All I care about for our purposes is this word nega. What is the plague? The plague is Christianity, right? So this phrase is being interpre interpreted as an allusion to Christian heresy. It was probably excised in later manuscripts of the Talmud. As you move into the medieval period, these references to Christianity are excised or taken out. Now there's another even more complicated allusion to Christianity, and I think this is fascinating. And again, it's tricky, it's a little complicated, but I think it's worth exploring. This 
story, which is a very funny, humorous story, is preserved in Masechet Shabbat. And it's a story that associates Christianity not with plague, but with the ass, with the, the donkey. And I think this is significant because I think the association between a religion that has no dignity and a religion that worships silly things becomes commuted from Jews being the recipients of this accusation to deploying the accusation onto the Christians. Take a look at this. This is a great story if you're familiar with it. All right, Ima Shalom. And if you've read, oh, what's her name? Um, Yochi Brandis's recent book. She has Ima Shalom as a very important figure in the orchard, if, if any of you have read it. Okay, Ima Shalom, the wife of Rabbi Eliezer, was Rabban Gamliel's sister. And there was a Christian philosopher. No, it doesn't say Christian. Um, it just says uh, philosoph. Anyway, okay. So, it, uh, so there was a philosopher in their neighborhood who disseminated about himself the reputation that he doesn't accept bribes. He's totally incorruptible. Now, what do they decide to do? They want to prove that he, in fact, is not, uh, is not incorruptible, but that he can be bribed. So Ima Shalom tests him. Now, really what she's trying to do is what they felt Jesus had done to Jews. They want to humiliate him. Okay. So she sends him a golden lamp as a bribe. And then she and Rabban Gamliel approach him for judgment. Now, again, they're mocking him. She sends him a lamp. And then they go to him for judgment. And she's thinking, you know, I'm going to get him to judge in my favor. So she says to the philosopher, here's the query. Here's the legal di dispute. I want to share in the inheritance of my father's estate. And he says, it's not totally in her favor, but it is a little bit in her favor. He says, okay, divide it, split it down the middle. Presumably because she had sent him this lamp. But Rabban Gamliel says, no, 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 we don't divide it in half. That's not how it goes. I get all of it. It's written in our Torah. In a situation where there's a son, the daughter does not inherit. Now, Gamliel knows that his sister has sent the lamp, but the philosopher does not know that Gamliel's in on the joke, right? They're testing him together. Okay, so philosopher's like, well, he, he's, gonna, he's going to rule in her favor because he got this lamp, right? So he's like, no, 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 your Torah does not apply anymore. Since the day you were exiled from your land, the Torah of Moshe was taken away, and this is a great, this is a great phrase, Avon Gilion, the scroll of sin, which is a great pun on the, evangel the, the evangelization, right? The teaching, the, the evangelizing, right? So Avon Gilion, the rabbis take that Greek word um, and they turn it into the scroll of sin. It's just so great. Okay. Um, so since uh, you were exiled, you know, that covenant is taken away and it was replaced with the Avon Gilion. And in the Avon Gilion, it says, a son and a daughter shall inherit alike. So he rules in favor of, of Ima Shalom. But again, it's really because of the lamp. All right, so they go home. The next day, Rabban Kamliel sends him a bribe, sends the philosopher a second bribe, right? So the first bribe is from Mashalom. The second bribe is from her brother, Kamliel. And the, the bribe is a donkey, but maybe a fancy donkey from Libya. I don't know if Libyan donkeys were special, but okay. Then they go back to him for judgment. Right. And they're like, okay, once again, you know, we're disputing this inheritance. Ima Shalom does not accept yesterday's ruling. We're coming back to you again. Like, what's the deal? So he says, you know what? Oh, no, sorry, not Ima Shalom did accept the bribe. It was in her favor. 
um, Liel doesn't accept the bribe because he wants more than half. So he says, okay, you know what? Now he has the donkey, so he wants to rule in Gamliel's favor. I proceeded to the end of the Evangelion, and there it says, and this is a direct line from, uh, I, I believe it's Gospel of Matthew, but uh, I, one, of the one of the synoptic gospels, Jesus says, I've come not to abolish the law and the prophets. So here in the Talmud, we have a citation of that. I've come not to subtract from the Torah of Moshe, and I do not come to add to the Torah of Moshe. And so if it's written in the Torah that a daughter doesn't inherit, I have to honor that. So I'm sorry, Ima Shalom, I can't split the inheritance in half. I have to give the entire inheritance to your brother. Okay, because now he has gotten presumably a better bribe from Gamiel. He has a better bribe, so he's got a rule in his favor. Everybody with me? It's like tricky. But all of this you could sort of put to the side because the most important part of the story is the end where she, where Imashal mocks this philosopher and she says, may your light shine like a lamp. Uh, uh, like Winkington, like, I know what just happened. I had bribed you, you ruled in my favor. So you must've gotten a different bribe. Of course she knows the whole story. And then Rabban Kamliel follows up on her mockery and says, well, the donkey came and kicked up. And in that phrase, he reveals the entire episode, right? So his present kicked away her present. And in so doing, of course, this isn't so nice, right? Like they're totally mocking this philosopher who's obviously Christian, right? He's quoting the New Testament. They're totally mocking him. Is this polite behavior? No, but let's focus on the message here. It's not only that, uh, you know, they're revealing the fact that he's not consistent. Is the old covenant of the Jews living or is it not? Obviously it's a live debate. I mean, until at least the fourth century with the Council of Nicaea. But what I think is significant is the choice to send him a donkey, right? Why send him a donkey? There's something that actually lacks dignity, right? In this animal, which does not have a reputation for being, being particularly intelligent or elegant or, you know, sophisticated, it's a donkey. And I believe that there is some kind of symbolic association that Gamliel is arguing when he says the donkey came and kicked the lamp, I think that he's also making an argument about how Christians are mocking and treating Jews. So I think that th this is a significant choice. And I wonder if it goes back, and I'm not the first person to say this, it's suggested in other scholarship as well, that there is an allusion to this common association uh, between Jews and worshiping a donkey that they're trying to commute onto the Christians by creating that association. So if you have, you know, I'm only doing these two little passages, but what I want to suggest is that there is a mockery of Christianity at this relatively early stage. I mean, these could be fifth, sixth century traditions, but we're talking about earlier rabbis, right? Gamliel doesn't live in the fifth, sixth century, it was much earlier, but, um, but that there is a derisive attitude towards Christianity so much so that there's an association between them and nega and plague. But when it comes to the Exodus story, it takes about a thousand years to demonize Paro, I think in the way that becomes dominant in our contemporary imaginations. By which I mean, we've already talked about how in the second temple period, Jews, maybe in a surprising way, are sympathetic towards, or slightly sympathetic towards the Egyptians. And that carries into early rabbinic texts. And so we have some very famous articulations of this sympathy. And I'm going to share one very uh, famous one with you. 
Uh, we have um, a description uh, at the end of Shemot Perikadalid, chapter 14, as the Israelites have exited, um, exited the land of Egypt, but they're really not out of the woods yet. They're still in danger. The, they're being pursued. And the angel of God who's going before the Israelite army uh, guides them. And there's a pillar of cloud that moves from in front of them and takes place behind them. It's very dramatic moment. And this pillar comes between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud is there in the darkness. It lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Now, this is very hard in the Hebrew, actually. It's quite confusing. So there's the cloud and there's the darkness. The cloud is with the darkness. Unclear. I mean, this is interpretive, right? It doesn't really say in the Hebrew that the cloud was there with the darkness. It just says, they were both there. And it, I don't know what, illuminated the the, the, the night, was that the cloud? Maybe, but we just talked about the choshech. This is confusing. And one did not approach the other all night. So is this the darkness and the cloud did not approach one another all night? This is actually like quite difficult to translate. And so every translation really is an interpretation as we know. And certainly the uh, translations here obfuscate how very difficult the Hebrew is. Uh, but what's striking is the language which we know from a very famous prophetic biblical verse in Yeshayahu, Vav, uh, which becomes incorporated into the rabbinic liturgy pretty early on. Uh, and so rabbis like to make connections between verses. They like to read intertextually, putting verses sort of horizontally into communication with other verses. And they do so achronologically, meaning it's very, very common for the rabbis to take a verse from a later, uh, or no, I'll say from an earlier stage in Israeli history and illuminate it, read it through the lens of a later verse. And Daniel Boyarn has a lot of interesting scholarship on how the rabbis do this and uh, midrashic intertextuality. But so look at what, uh, what the rabbis do. This is preserved in Megillah 10b. Um, Rabbi Yo Yochanan asks, late first century C asks, what's the meaning of that which is written below Kol right? Okay, so what does this mean? And now he's going to make a connection with this famous vision that Yeshayahu has in Paragvav, in which he sees the ministering angels in the celestial spheres praising God, right? And if you have, a, if you've prayed in a synagogue, you've probably heard this prayer. Um, and so, so what's, is there a connection between this verse and the probably more famous verse in Yeshayahuvav? And Yochanan says, yes, there's a connection. Because what was happening at this very moment as the Israelites are escaping Egypt? The angels want to praise God, right? As they always do. They want to sing their song. They want to praise God. This is an incredible moment. Uh, you know, the, the greatest uh, moment in Israelite history so far. And uh, God says, no, no. Uh, God said, right, the handiwork of, let's just look at the work of my hands, are drowning in the ocean, and you want to sing? It's, you know, grotesque, it's macabre. God says, absolutely not, out of the question. Amar Rabbi Elazar, you know what? I'm going to stop there. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to go into Rabbi Elazar's. You could read it for yourself, it's very interesting. Uh, but it's just more of the same, right? God does not... Um, rejoice over the downfall of the wicked, but he causes others. But the point here is that I think what you do have 
is a very sympathetic portrait of the suffering of humans, even when those people are threatening the lives of the Israelites, right? God never rejoices over the downfall of the wicked. Uh, and so here we have, again, this is not like an extremely early rabbinic tradition, it's a Talmudic tradition, uh, but we have um, a tradition that seems to be sympathetic towards the loss of life. Uh, is there a question that cannot wait till the end? Uh, if you really uh, need, you could ask it now. Thanks, yeah. sorry, it's just a clarifying thing. Sorry, you, what was the parallel between the two verses? I just didn't catch that. So it's this phrase, yeah, it's a good question. Okay, so if you look at Shmot Yadalid, you see Karav Ze'elzeh, like what a kind of a strange phrase, right? Like the cloud and the darkness are not approaching each other, but we just read by Hihanan Ve'achoshech. So they're juxtaposed, but they're not approaching. Like, how do we visualize this, you know? So the rabbis take this phrase, Karav Ze'elzeh, and they say, oh, wait, this phrase also appears in Ishayao Paragvav with the ministering angels praising God. And they say, okay, this actually has nothing to do with the Anan the Choshech. This doesn't have anything to do with the cloud and the darkness. This tells us something about what was going on in the celestial spheres. The angels wanted to praise God. So they're putting these two passages that have a parallel phrase in connection with one another. So why am I saying all this? I just want to emphasize, at the same time that there are rabbinic communities who are mocking Christianity, they haven't made the association between contemporary enemies and enemies of old. Whereas Greeks and Romans did do that to the Jews, right? The Jews are, have this ignominious origin. They, they derive at their earliest roots. They derive from something that just lacks dignity that, you know, thousands of years ago, right? The Exodus is ancient, even in the second century BC, it's over a thousand years old. Um, and, and so the very roots of the of the people are just you know gross, right? Not not legitimate. They're not legitimate people. Uh, but the rabbis, likewise, take about a thousand years to make this connection. So what I'm going to show is that by the medieval period, Paro becomes uh, an enemy in a way that has resonances for the Jews' contemporary enemies. So it's a little bit of a complicated idea, but what I'm going to argue is that as Jews are accused of spreading disease in the medieval period, they, as these binaries between, uh, or, or I'll say differently, as Jews are increasingly socially isolated in medieval Europe, they create a much firmer boundary between the Jewish community and everything outside of it. Ultimately, this leads to the demonization of Paro. Now, let, let me take you through this because I know this is a lot. Okay, so this is relatively sympathetic. I mean, it's very sympathetic, right? God does not want to sing. God does not want the angels to sing as uh, there's human life being lost. Um, likewise, in the Tanchuma, very hard to date this document. Um, in the Tanchuma, uh, we're, we're asked a question, okay, why, why is there choshech, why is there darkness? because God shows no partiality and he wanted to judge all people. So he brought darkness upon them because there were sinners in Israel who had Egyptian patron, patrons and enjoyed honor and wealth and they were unwilling to leave. So, so these people died. It is also very famous. It's cited by Rashi, 12th century exegete in France. So these sinful Jews die in Choshech, but God does not want them to die in public before the Egyptians because he doesn't want the Egyptians to think 
that there is this cosmic similarity between the Egyptians and the Israelites. God said, if I bring a plague upon these sinful Jews in broad daylight from which they will die, the, Egyptian, the Egyptians will say, just as it passed over us, it passed over them. So this Midrash is arguing for Jewish exceptionalism, while at the same time, um, while at the same time arguing that God judges all humankind equally. I think this Midrash wants to have its cake and eat it too, right? On the one hand, God is judging everyone equally. And so the sinful Israelites have to die. And yet it's done in private because God forbid the Egyptians should say that God doesn't have a special place in his heart <laughs> for the Israelites. Um, now, this could be representative of a turning point that brings us into a much darker representation of the Egyptians. And this very dark representation of the Egyptians, I think first appears in early Piyut, in early medieval uh, poetry, which depicts uh, Egypt and Paro as inherently evil and as a sort of metaphysical enemy, an existential enemy of the Jewish people. And there's a, a, a poem written in Aramaic, probably from the ninth or 10th century that I wanna direct your attention to. It's part of a collection of poems uh, called Shirat B'nai Ma'arava. And I want to, uh, I'll send this to anybody who's um, interested, but I'm going to look at the, uh, at the translation. Early medieval pute. Go Moses from the heavens to send to my children, though I intend to rescue all the people, to you shall I be manifest all the miracles for lo, the image of your ancestor is graven on my throne. If Paro should refuse to release my, my children, if he fails to defeat the name of the living one, if he should cast my babes into the river, I will seek reckoning from him just as he sought for my children. If he acts the tyrant, if he sits and enslaves them, all his firstborn, I will murder him. So in this Shira, God and Paro are sort of cosmic enemies. It's almost Gnostic in a way, this idea in early Christianity that you have forces of evil that are fighting forces of good all the time. And Paro becomes a representation of that force of evil that's constantly threatening the people. Um, and in another early piece, you see it even more strongly, this, this representation of Paro as being desirous of the annihilation of all Israelites here, Paro is not named. He's the Oyev. He's the enemy. Now you don't see depictions of Paro like this in earlier rabbinic literature. I, I don't. I don't know of it. This seems new. The enemy says, "I'll hitch my chariot with sword unsurpassed. Go forth, the heroes waging war." The enemy said, "Hurry after my slaves. Two hundred ten years were they under my head, but now they have fled for my enslavement." The enemy said, "Fill your hands with their belongings. Slaughter their menfolk." defile their women. The enemy said, bloody work shall be done. Their face is erased from beneath the heavens. Here, Paro wants to annihilate all Jews, all of Judaism. This goes well beyond the story of the Exodus. In the story of Shemot, Paro does not want, and I hate to be so sort of casual about it, but Paro does not want the economic disaster that will surely ensue if he loses his slaves. Paro is not trying to murder every Israelite. I'm, you know, I'm not sympathetic to Paro, but Paro is not trying to annihilate all the people of Israel. Paro wants slaves because, sadly, 
economies depend on, well, not everyone, certainly, but historically, this is, this was his economic sort of foundation. Uh, but here we have something new. Para wants to erase the faces of the Jews from beneath the heavens. The enemy says, act murderously against them. Let my nobles divide their spoils. Give every individual over to destruction. And the piyut ends, it's actually very beautiful. You see how every stanza starts with Amar Oyev, Amar Oyev, Amar Oyev. And the last line, but Amar Moshe, O shepherd of Israel, give ear. Ro'e Yisrael ha'azina nohei kitson yosef, yosef ha'kruvim, hofia. O shepherd of Israel, give ear, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned on the Kruvim, shine forth. And so the end of the Piyut ends with God sort of manifesting himself at the call of Moses to save the people. The enemy talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and, talks and, talks and all Moses has to say is, God of Israel, Hophia, shine forth. And God's like, here I am. Um, so it's just, uh, you know, the contrast between the enemy jabbering on about everything he's going to do to annihilate the Jews, none of it comes to, uh, to fruition. Now, as we move into later medieval midrashic traditions, we just see an increasingly caricatured portrait of Paro that I don't think we see in early midrash. And Shemot Rabbah, which is a, a medieval, it's a medieval collection of uh, midrashic traditions on, uh, on, Exodus, we have Paro laughing at Moses and Aaron, screeching at them like a chicken. These are the signs of your God when they bring their, uh, when, when Moshe and Aaron throw their staff into the ground and it turns into a snakes. Uh, they say, the way of the world is for people to ply their wares in a place that needs them. You know, I wonder if anyone's ever written on whether Midrash here is using Shakespeare, right? It's like bringing some fish to, what's that place? Somebody needs to unmute. It's like, what's the Shakespearean phrase? It's like bringing fish to the fish town. I call to Newcastle. Yeah. I don't know why I was thinking fish. <laughs> Thank you. Right. So this Midrash seems to imitate fish. I don't know. Um, Oh, it's because it fishes in the Midrash. That's why I was thinking fish. These are the signs of your God. The way of the world is for people to ply their wares in a place that needs them. Nobody brings fish broth to Spain, fish to Akko. All these places have fish. That's why I was thinking fish. Do you not know that all the sorcerers are under my dominion? Like, you fools, you're doing these tricks that we've all mastered. All the magicians in Egypt can do what you just did. And he's screeching at them like a chicken humiliating them. Again, we have this theme that we keep saying over and over, this public humiliation. Uh, now it was in earlier rabbinic documents applied to uh, Christians to condemn them. And now we see Paro seeking to publicly humiliate the, the Israelites. And I am not going to do a, a lot of this, but I want you to see just to what extent these stories are explicated. Because if you remember from our first class, a lot of the Second Temple retellings of Sefer Shemot really skimp on the Exodus story. There's a lack of comfort. And remember that a lot of these exegetes, a lot of these biblical interpreters are living in Alexandria. They're living in Egypt and they're quite comfortable integrating to a degree into their host empire. And uh, there are other Judean texts like Pseudophilo, for instance, 
who simply are not comfortable with the story of the place and they don't dwell on the story. But by the medieval period, it's a story that is seen as being rich, rich with meaning, um, mind for detail. And again, I'm happy to send all this to you, but it just, I mean, we have so much explication of the plagues in Shemot Rabbah. And over and over, Paro is demonized as an enemy of God, as an enemy of the Jewish people. When the middle of the night arrived, God killed all the firstborn concerning those that were placed in the house of the Jews. God would skip between the Jews and the Egyptians and take the soul of the Egyptian, leave the soul of the Jew. And the Jew would wake up and find the Egyptian dead among all the Jews who were alive. As it is said, I will skip over you and there will not be a plague among you, the Jews, the Israelites. The Jews then began to say, at midnight I arise to praise you. Now, remember the earlier rabbinic tradition where God says, no, 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 you don't praise me, right? When there's a loss of human life, of course, he's talking to angels, he's not talking to people. But when there's a loss of human life, God is not to be praised. Now in this much later rabbinic tradition, it seems like a perfectly wonderful thing to praise God when the enemies of the people meet their just demise. But look at that contrast. This is not interrogated. This is just a wonderful story about how uh, the people are saved from this plague and it consequently praise God. It seems to be in some conflict with this earlier tradition. You don't praise God when there's a loss of life. Now, in our remaining time, let's talk about what was going on in the 13th century. Not great. <laughs> so uh, I'm not a medieval historian, but I'm going to share some sources with you. And I'm even going to do some show and tell. Uh, I, I have relied a lot on David Nirenberg's wonderful book, anti-Judaism, not very uplifting, but I recommend it. I don't directly allude to it, but I'm very influenced by Jim Carroll's uh, book, Constantine, Constantine's Sword. These are also like giant books, but you know, if you have a lot of time and they're very readable. Um, and I've also used Marcus's uh, Jew in the Medieval World, uh, his source book. And I'm just telling you this because again, I'm not a medieval historian. I, you know, I'm very immersed in the world of early Judaism. So this is sort of out of my wheelhouse, uh, but you know, that's okay. That's how we, that's how we grow. Okay, so let's talk about the association in the medieval period between Jews and the spread of disease. And you may know the city of St. Louis is named after one of the most notorious Jew haters in medieval France, and that's the monarch uh, Louis IX. So we have some documents about uh, Louis IX who famously uh, burned the Talmud in public and uh, wrote an edict expelling the Jews. And there's a document uh, written by a French Grand Master of the Knights Templar, which is a Catholic military order stationed in Jerusalem. And this, uh, this is a quote in that document. Uh, this is, again, is it reliable? We don't know. But this is a quote which purports to cite a statement made by Louis IX about the Jews defending his decision uh, to get rid of them. And he says uh, that it has to do with the Jewish uh, corruption and sort of economic damage that they're doing through usury, through lending uh, poor innocent Christians on interest. Of course, there was not much that Jews were allowed to do in medieval Europe. Um, so, you know, they were a little bit in a bind. 
the matter of Christian usurers does pertain to the church, the matter of the Jews who are subjected to me by the yoke of servitude pertains to me, lest they oppress Christians by their usury under the shelter of my protection and infect my land with poison. Now you might think that that is figurative. It could be very literal as we're going to see. I wish to do what pertains to me concerning the Jews. Let them abandon usury let them, or let them leave my lands completely lest it be further defiled by their filth. So the association between Jews and the spread of disease very, very powerful here. It doesn't originate in the medieval period. It doesn't originate with the Christians, it's ancient. And that's why also Magda Teter, T-E-T-E-R, wrote a wonderful book recently on the origins of the blood libel. But it's my opinion that the blood libel, like I've said, really derives from the Hellenistic era. Okay, it wasn't exactly, you know, about Pesach or matzah or taking the Jewish blood of the innocent children and, you know, making matzah, but this idea that there's ritual killing um, of Christians or of, you know, Gentiles, non-Jews, that's absolutely um, Hellenistic. Okay. All right, so now look at this image. This is a 1493 image of the burning of the Jews at Degendorf. Look at this image, very disturbing. Um, Degendorf is a city in Bavaria, in, Christ in Bavaria and Germany. And uh, there's a well-documented uh, well incident in uh, 1338 in which uh, locals set fire to uh, the Jewish quarter of the town. Uh, and slaughtered all of its inhabitants. And these acts of violence were later subsequently justified as um, a response to Jews uh, defiling, uh, defiling uh, uh, host desecration. In other words, uh, relics that were used in church communion, but that's actually not what happened. Uh, I mean, even if it did happen obviously nothing justifies an act like this but it's only later that that tradition emerges there really is no incident that we know of which galvanized this uh slaughter and the killing spreads to 21 other towns in bavaria um so this is a you know massive tragedy and then the tradition that this derived from post desecration of church ritual is a much later 15th century version um, so what's happening at this time? Well, what's actually interesting to me is that this is right before, not after, right before the Black Plague. And I think that's interesting because the way that medieval Christian Europe responds to the Black Plague, it's not out of context. Meaning it's not like, you know, millions of people die and then they're just searching and searching for someone to blame. So they accuse the Jews. But this kind of, um, uh, murder, violence, oppression of Jewish people predates the Black Plague. Uh, but when the Black Plague occurs, there is a frenzy to get public confessions of Jews to admit that they are poisoning wells and spreading disease. And some of these forced confessions are documented. And I'm going to share one with you uh, that is uh, documented, and this is um, this is translated by uh, by Jacob Rader Marcus. Uh, and so we're not going to do this whole thing, but uh, take a look at this. Okay, I'm just trying to decide where to start. Right, this is actually not the one that I want to focus on, but that that's okay. Okay. 
All right, so uh, in October in this castle, there occurred a judicial inquiry, which was made by order of the court of the illustrious prince and his subjects against the Jews of both sexes were imprisoned, each one separately done after public rumor had become current and a strong clamor had arisen because of the poison put into them, uh, put by them into the wells, springs and other things which Christian, Christians use demanding that they die, that they are able to be found guilty and therefore they should be punished. And so this is a confession of one individual named Agimet the Jew who lived at Geneva, but was accused of bringing poison to Venice and poisoning the innocence of Venice. When Agumet was setting out on a journey to Venice to buy silks and other things for this wealthy uh, trader, um, a rabbi comes up to Agumet and says, you're going to Venice? Okay, I'm giving you a little package of half a span in size, which contains poison and venom in a thin sewed leather bag. Distribute it, drop it into the wells, the cisterns and springs all about Venice and the other places which you go in order to poison the people who use the water of the aforesaid wells that will have been poisoned by you, namely the wells in which the, the poison has been placed. And so that's what Agumet does. Now again, this is a confession. Did, do I think that this happened? No, he is tortured into, a, into writing a signed confession. Um, these things happen. Uh, so he uh, takes this package full of poison and he carries it to Venice, scatters it into the well or cistern of fresh water, which was there near the German house in order to poison the people. Um, and I wanna bring your attention to this last paragraph. He confesses further that he put some of this poison into the public fountain uh, and asked if at the time that he scattered the venom and poisoned the wells and uh, above, uh, uh, da, 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 da. He said he did not know in as much as he had left everyone. Oh, so asked whether people indeed had died. He said he knew because after he did it, he ran away in a hurry. Asked if any of the Jews of those places were guilty in this matter. He said he did not know. So that's not much of a confession, right? If you don't know if anyone's been killed and you don't know anyone who's in the plot, I mean, he just doesn't. He says what he needs to say, but he's not going to implicate innocent Jews uh, to go down with him. Now, by all that which is contained in the five books of Moses, they make him swear on his own scriptures. He declares that this is true. He was in no way lying, no matter what might happen to him. Um, we have from this uh, same archival history an account of um, what happens to the Jews of Strasbourg who are who are by force brought into their uh, synagogue and the synagogue is set on fire. Uh, it's a very famous incident I, I, and they're accused of spreading plague. I, I don't wanna focus on this actually, but like I said, I'm happy to send you the source. Um, do I wanna do this in Oath Taken by Jews? Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, uh, no, I wanna go on. Okay, there is an epitaph discovered in Toledo, Spain dating to the time of the Black Plague uh, commemorating the death of a child who has died from the plague, a Jewish child. And it's so poignant that I wanna share it with you. This stone is a memorial that a, a later generation may know that beneath it lies hidden a pleasant bud, a cherished child, perfect in knowledge, a reader of the Bible, a student of the Mishnah and the Gemara, learned from his father what his father learned from his teachers, the statutes of God and his laws. Though only 15 years in age, he was like a man of 80 in knowledge more blessed than all sons, Asher, may he rest in paradise, the son of Yosef ben Turiel, may God comfort him, died of the plague, 
and there's the date. But a few months before his death, he established his home, he got married. But yesternight, the joyous voice of the bride and groom was turned to the voice of wailing. Father's left sad and aching. May the God of heaven grant him comfort and send another child to restore his soul. This is very beautiful. Now, traditionally, scholars have thought maybe Jews did not die as much in the Black Plague because they washed their hands more or they adhered more to, you know, what we would call hygiene. But I actually just read a very interesting article in the Jewish Review of Books. I don't know if you read it, but they said that it also could be that there was some genetic, um, that, that there was a gene that or an antibody that Jews had that made them resistant to this particular strain. There's been some like medical research being done that maybe there was a biological like antibody or resistance that Jews, Jews had. We really don't know. But what we know is that Jews died from the plague uh, and they suffered horribly from the plague. Was it the same percentage of Jews who died as Christians? Um, so maybe not, but they certainly did suffer greatly. Okay. I want to skip things because I want to do some fun things. This is the end of this three-part series. And now I'm going to do some picture time <laughs> because I think it's very important to put literary evidence into conversation with material evidence. Again, just as I'm not a medieval scholar, I am not an art historian, but it's very fun. And I'm not an archeologist, but it's very fun to look at material culture and put it into conversation with literary history. So what I've tried to do is show you that early rabbinic texts seem to be sympathetic to the Egyptians and to Paro, even as they're mocking and humiliating Christians. But by the medieval period, there's incredible antagonism towards Paro. And I think that's because Paro is a stand-in for the enemy, whether the enemy is Christian and contemporary or the enemy is ancient and Egyptian, the, the enemy is an existential threat. And so there's this real antagonism in the medieval period that you see, and it's happening as Jews are being horribly oppressed in a way that they've never experienced. Um, does the material culture parallel this trend? So I wanna show you a fascinating synagogue uh, from the third century known as Dura Europos in modern day Syria. Okay, that doesn't look that interesting, right? Like, how do I know where anything is? That's a synagogue. It could be like a hotel for all I know. but uh, if you go inside Dura Europos, you will see one of the most astounding uh, artistic images of biblical stories that survive. Uh, and you can read all about this easily online, but each of those squares retells a famous story in the Hebrew Bible. And so for example, if we were to zoom in, we would see, look at that. That in Greek, top right, Aaron. See, that's Aaron, that's the priest. Look at this stunning image. I'm not gonna spend so much time uh, interpreting this priestly image of Aaron at the, is he at the temple? Is he at the tabernacle? Obviously Aaron really wasn't at the temple, but there is some, some sort of you know priestly temple imagery here. People bring sacrifices to the priest. Uh, you know, it, it's obviously it's the tabernacle, but it looks like the temple. But that's okay. Uh, so you see the parochet, right? You see the altar, you see the ark, you see the menorah. I mean, this is just mind blowing. Third century. Incredible. This has nothing to do with the place, but I thought it was cool. Uh, but look at this image. This image, uh, so obvious what it is, right? 
this is the daughter of Paro discovering baby Moses. And look, she takes him from the little beautiful ark that his mother had made. And all the Egyptian women are fascinated. What's happening here? Why is Bat Paro, who's bathing in the river, coming out with this Israelite baby? They're curious, right? These women do not look like they're sort of evil, maniacal plotters. They're just curious, what's happening? What? Tell us what's going on. And Bat Paro says, I have this baby and I'm going to take him home and I'm going to care for him, right? Seems to be very, very sort of tranquil and placid and, you know, poignant even. This is another image from Jura Europos where uh, you see the moment at which the Egyptians uh, pursue uh, the Israelites and are uh, drowned in the sea. Now these arms are probably the arms of heaven, the outstretched arms of God and Moses uh, with the staff and Aaron. Well, actually, I don't know. Would Aaron be the taller one? At first, I thought the one on the left was Moses, but the one on the right has a staff, so that would be Moses. So I'm not sure. But this is, you know, again, uh, you know, there's a lot of detail here. You could see the fish in the Nile. Maybe they're all dead because of the plague of blood. Um, but again, uh, you know, you don't see Paro. You don't see Paro sort of being villainous, right? Just like you didn't see any other female member of the court being villainous. Um, the focus here is on the outstretched arm of God and the salvation. So look at that. It's pretty incredible. Uh, this is uh, much harder to see, but you could see the doorposts, maybe the angels passing over the doors of the Israelites. Okay, now look at, I mean, this is just unbelievable. And you can see, you can see uh, these images online, uh, and there are many, many, many others that you could see as well, uh, of varying quality based on their level of decay and where they are in the room. Okay. Um, now look at this 14th century Haggadah, very famous Haggadah, the golden Haggadah. And I, I want to wrap up because I want to make sure we have time. Uh, to talk. Look at this. Okay, so here we have Paro. That's Paro's. Now he's like a medieval noble. Sending the Israelites away. We have them in the top right. This would probably be the queen mother mourning over a dead child. And then the Egyptians carrying their dead away. We have over here the Egyptians drowning right? Pursuing Israelites and drowning. So we have an image of Paro. Paro is really not an historian during Europus, but here in the Golden Haggadah, the, the, the kingly family and how they are behaving badly and consequently punished is really at the foreground of the story. I'm actually going to skip this one. I actually love this image, but it doesn't work in this sheet because this isn't like a Jewish image. I mean, he wasn't I meant to write that he wasn't Jewish. Uh, he was he was Christian. Uh, Evazovsky. It's just kind of beautiful. It's a 19th century painting of the Red Sea. Doesn't again doesn't really, you know, do anything for my talk because it would be very interesting if he was Jewish, but it's not Jewish interpretation. Anyway, okay. Do we see some trend from the earlier source to the later source in which Paro becomes an increasingly central part of the story? I think yes. And now I want to show you two representations of how Jews, this is a very shocking image, how Jews bring the Exodus story into contemporary times or how the, how the story is brought into contemporary times. Is anybody familiar with Mark Chagall's Exodus? Now we can, we can unmute because it's 7.54 and I want to start this conversation. The message, first of all, they're calling this Exodus, right? And it's clearly 
an image of Jesus on the cross. And there are many such images in Chagall. I, I've heard a very compelling read of what Chagall is trying to do here, and you could feel free to disagree. Again, I'm not an art historian, but it seems uh, that Chagall is arguing that the massacred six million Jews, the destruction of European Jewry is, is the Christ, is the sacrificed, um, is the, 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 the sacrifice entity of the 20th century. Um, look at Moses holding the tablets. Okay, and now look at that. Okay, I have thrown a lot. I'm not even gonna talk about that. I'm just gonna put that out there. I've thrown a lot out. And so I want to sum up with a few central ideas. It's probably not a surprise that when the Jews are increasingly isolated and mistreated, they respond in kind with an increased cosmology that has a clear binary between the forces of good and the forces of evil those on the side of the Jewish heroes and those who are threatening their existence. You don't see that binary in the second temple period. You don't even see it early on in the rabbinic period, except you do see mockery of the Christians. But the real demonization of the enemy, right? This sort of midrashic black and white thinking, you can't be a great character, you're either good or you're evil, you're black, white, you know, this binary thinking of the world, that comes much later. And I think it comes in response to associations, uh, to accusations of the Jewish people that uh, associate them with, with plague. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Chai, I'm only seeing, and Steve, I'm only seeing these questions now, but it's 7.56, we're a small group. And so as usual, I'm going to invite all of you to um, unmute and uh, we could start with Steve or we could start with Chaya but feel free and I can go to, you know, 805 if Noah's okay with it. Uh, but we can have a conversation. If you have any comments about the other two uh, talks, we can certainly discuss those as well. Any, uh... Um, a couple of people actually... Do we know when, oh, we know when the... Your next time. A goddess started vilifying Pharaoh? Vilifying... Pharaoh. Um, I mean, I think you'd have to look at what, what, I don't know what passage you're referring to, right? Well, now the, you know, Pharaoh is the, you know, the villain of all the Haggadahs, no matter who wrote them. But okay. do we know when that started? Do we know when the, the, so I guess the question is, does the Haggadah vilify Pharaoh? Yeah, I think he does. I think it does. So I think we have to look at the source. I think we have to look at the source, right? Because I think there's a difference between saying God saved the Israelites, right? God saved us and created a covenantal relationship and fostered and nurtured this unique, this unique relationship. And certainly I think that there is that theme in the Haggadah, but I don't know if the focus, well, I guess the passage about how many plagues there were. That'd be very interesting. And I don't know when to date that. Uh, but I do have a Haggadah that has the dates. I could look that up for you. And I think it's probably, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it's pre-medieval. I just don't know what the date is. Okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's early rabbinic, yeah. 
A couple of oh, people yeah. accidentally sent their questions directly to me instead of to the chat. So maybe I'll just read them to you because I think I had been the last person to write something. So huh. when they tried to send it to the chat, it came to me. So um, actually, a couple of them are from Stevie. So I assume she would have said them. So but um, uh, Bonnie Hernandez asked if you could send the list of books that you were recommending yeah. in the chat. Yeah, yeah, I got that. Oh, yeah, I yeah. send it to okay. her directly. Thank you. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to remember. So you just have to email me and then I'll respond. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, thank you so much. I also, I didn't hear the last, what was the third book that you recommended? I caught the first two, but not, it was, you said it was a source book? Oh, oh, I mean, this is not, I don't recommend it in the same way. This is just the Jew in the medieval world. Oh, it's interesting. Cool. It's, it's very useful, but it doesn't make a particular argument. It's a source book. It's a reader, but these, these are very important works. Um, especially Nuremberg, who's at the University of Chicago. He's the Dean of the Divinity School. Yeah. I think that was all of them. Okay. Maka? So yeah. I, I was uh, intrigued by the, the Shirat B'nai Ma'arava because yeah. he, it, he's riffing on Azia Yashir. I mean, you know, it's, it's like he's just using Azia Yashir, but uh, it's not Moshe talking, you know, it's, yeah. you have it like, uh, it, the emphasis seems to be that, yeah, as you said, Paro is the anonymous enemy in Az Yashir. It's just, you know. Right, absolutely. It's lifting, it's lifting the phrasing from Az Yashir and then doing something totally different with it, right? The focus is not on God's strong hand. The focus is on this, like, just like, uh, homicidal impulse of Paro. Yeah, thank you. Um, anything else before we say goodbye? Kaya, did you? Never mind. Okay. Yeah, the last image uh, is from the very early weeks of the coronavirus. The image yeah. of the person <laughs> holding up the Israeli flag with the rat instead of the Magen David. Uh, this association of Jews and plague. It's very, very ancient. It has its roots, not even in the medieval period, but mm -hmm. in the Greco-Roman world. So yeah, it's very, very disturbing. Yeah. At the same time, when we keep in mind that that rabbinic passage that suggests that nega is Christianity. So, you know, we find in our own tradition as well, these kinds of trends. All right. Thank you very much for sticking with me over the past three weeks. And uh, I hope to learn again with you sometime soon and stay well and be healthy. Also like to thank, of course, uh, Dr. Simkovich for this wonderful, wonderful class. I hope she'll be joining us again soon uh, with another Drisha class. But if you can't wait, uh, we still have ongoing classes and we have a couple starting again next week, including one with one of my most beloved Drisha educators, Miriam Gedweiser, and uh, another class starting with uh, Rabbi Doctor. That's the way it goes, right? Rabbi Doctor Shalomo Zukier, and that's going to be very text heavy. So if you really want to sink your teeth into original sources, he's your guy for that. And we hope to see everyone again very, very soon. And please be well.